Hello, I'm co-host Brooklyn Arroyo, and this is 100 Alumni Voices podcast, Stories That Inspire, where we explore the personal and professional journeys of a diverse group of 100 doctoral alumni from Johns Hopkins University. Today, we're joined by Golnush Kamali, PhD in Electrical Engineering, currently working at Johns Hopkins Technology Ventures. Welcome to the Futures Podcast. How are you today? Hi, Brooklyn. Thank you. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing well as, as well. So <laughs> I, I want to just jump into it. And sure. what led you, if anything, to go down the electrical engineering path, especially through a PhD? And um, what was that journey for you? Yeah, so um, I chose a PhD because I wanted to be a professor, and I found that to teach at the college level, a PhD is really what's necessary, and I kind of had that vision of being a professor because I like to teach, but also my dad, um, he's retired now, but he used to also be a professor, though his was in computer science, and he was a dean of a university, and I got to see him growing up, like the stuff that he would do, sometimes like take your daughter to work day, I get to go sit in the classroom with him, and I really enjoyed that, Um, so I was like, okay, I think I really want a PhD. And I was very ambitious as a child, like, what's the highest degree I can get? PhD, so let's do that. Um, I chose electrical engineering because, so at first I wanted to do an MD PhD because I also really liked medicine. So I want to do both, but then I was like, oh, it's just gonna take a lot of time, a lot of work. And what am I more passionate about? And I really love math and science. Um, And I felt that electrical engineering is pretty broad. So you can do a lot of different things in that field. You can do power, you can do energy, you can, you know, apply more medical applications to it. And I also saw that there wasn't that many females or um, people who are identifying as women in the field of electrical engineering. And that was something I kind of wanted to change the narrative of, because I feel like if there's more representation, there's more likelihood that people want to do that. So that was kind of another reason I chose it. Yeah, definitely. So you you mentioned how you sort of saw and were experiencing your father, and both of my parents are teachers. So I think that oh, it's nice. it's funny how oftentimes people who have family in education are also passionate about mm-hmm. education in some capacity. And so did you feel like that was something that was just a part of your household and you became growingly passionate about it and and your relationship with your father and do you think that that passion still exists in, in the work you're doing now? Yeah, um, I definitely think so. I think one of the things that my parents both taught me was that education is super important. doesn't mean you have to necessarily go up to like a graduate level, but like having some sort of solid foundation base that that really opens a door for most things that can happen in life. And so, and they're very involved with me, like my little kid, you know, helping me learn to read when I come home from school with my homework, doing that. And my dad being a math guy, like he'd always want to help me with all the math and like learn the newest things and do like, well, I know the teacher taught you this, but let's try a little bit more advanced or do that. And so, and then also when I got to go visit him in the classroom, like seeing his passion for teaching, how he related to the kids. So like you said, I think having parents in the education system, they kind of bring that at home too. Um, and I even got a chance to teach um, as a community college instructor for a year while I was doing my PhD. And I 
like really loved it. Cause I always would say, I want to be a teacher. Right. But I'm like, well, have I, do I actually know if I want to be a teacher? I, I've been a teaching assistant or course assistant or tutored, but then that year and a half where I really got to like teach my own lectures and like create my own curriculum. Um, it was amazing. Like I really felt so passionate. I felt like I had some sort of purpose and it really solidified my viewpoint that I want to keep doing that. Definitely. So do you think that the education you had for your PhD has well prepared you for the environment of being a professor now or working within the work that you're doing now? Uh, So I will say that I think it really depends by school and advisor and department in terms of the teaching aspect, because I feel like PhD is very focused on the research, which is understandable. Like the whole point is to, you know, have some sort of uh, dissertation or research project that you're very familiar with. And sometimes the teaching aspect isn't as emphasized, I guess you can say. Um, but then I was very lucky that I had a PI who also really likes to teach Dr. Sarma. And so um, she encouraged me, you know, to like seek out those other opportunities. So whether I was volunteering on the side, like helping, you know, elementary or middle school kids, or the fact that I, I personally went and took that instructor position, um, I think those are the things that helped me cultivate that more. Though I also know that Hopkins has programs that you can be more involved in, like to get more teaching certificates. Um, and then right now, my current role at JHTV, Johns Hopkins Tech Ventures, I'm not a teacher per se um, at the moment, but I am learning a lot more of the different technologies that are available, a lot of the research and how you can translate it and why I think that's also super important. A, I'm interested in that. But B, when I was an instructor, a lot of my students would tell me, you know, the theory, that's awesome. That's great. But I want to know I'm an engineer. Like, how do you apply that? Like, what's it like in the quote unquote real world? And I could have some idea, but at the time I hadn't really worked in industry. And so I'm glad that I can like kind of step back and be on the other side now. I'm like, okay, well, how do I take this really cool research idea and how do I translate it into that real world? What comes out of it? And then when I go back into teaching, I'm like, hey, this is actually why, you know, learning this mathematic concept, why learning this theory is really helpful, how you can use it. Definitely. And in, in being able to bring that back to the students and have those different perspectives, not just mm-hmm the academia aspect and primarily research led, like you were saying, and, and and having that quote unquote real world experience for, for educating them. So when going about deciding when you wanted to have that diversity of perspective and choose this career path and this, and this job place, was there a conscious decision of wanting to diversify your understanding for the benefit of your students, or did it sort of happen? And then you realize, wow, this is good for my students. Um, I would say probably the the latter kind of just happened. And then I was like, looking back, I was like, oh, this actually was really really helpful later on. So it wasn't a fully conscious decision. I think there were little steps along the way that kind of led me down to this path. So my PhD took a little longer than I had anticipated. Um, so in my mind, everyone has like a timeline, you know, game plan and life never really truly goes that way. And so for me, I was like, oh yeah, I'm going to take this much time, you know, in my undergrad, my master's, once straight to PhD, I'll be done, do a postdoc, blah, blah, blah. And that's not really what happened. Um, and so I think part of me was like, I just need a little bit of a break. I need something slightly different. And then, you know, then I can come back to that and I want to see what else is out there. And also um, last semester, last year, I was a presidential fellow at Hopkins. So I got to work at the vice provost of graduate, um, the office of vice provost of graduate education. 
and really kind of see on the other side, like the leadership that goes into the PhD program in graduate education. But while doing that, in that spring semester, I joined an accelerator program at Hopkins. So it's called Hexite, Excited for Healthcare, and it's a software accelerator. So these clinicians come in, they have this idea or, hey, I have this like really cool idea based on software, but I need some help, like, you know, building it out, whether they have a prototype or it's just a pure idea. And we help them build a team. So for 16 weeks, they get like a tech lead, a business lead and a design lead. And we take that idea and we try to figure out, like, is there a market? Can we create a startup? And so I did that as a technical lead. And I was like, whoa, this is really cool. Like, you know, I never thought about the startup space or how you take this idea and move it. And that's how I met my current boss at GHTV, like doing that program. And he was like, I know you're a PhD student. I know you're really into academia, but have you ever thought about this maybe? And I was like, yeah, actually, this seems really cool. And then so I decided to go in there. And then, like you said, I started thinking more about it. Like, oh, this also, you know, would help when I go back into teaching, like tell my students, you know, these are the role of applications and kind of diversifying uh, my landscape. Mm-hmm. Wow. So you you briefly mentioned how it wasn't necessarily linear. And um, I think that for a lot of uh, other PhD alumni that I've spoken to, they mentioned how it's oftentimes not a linear process. <laughs> and so what advice would you have for people who are currently entering their PhD or working within their PhD and they sort of feel like they're straying from a path that they envisioned for themselves and they're not really sure how to go about that. They don't feel really in control of where they're headed and, and, and how would you answer that? Uh, That's a good question. Um, I guess now, so one of the things I'll say, PhD is supposed to be hard, I guess. Um, That's kind of the nature, but there are different types of hard. So the academics of it should be hard, the like learning, but it should be hard, but invigorating. You should be excited about the topic, but it shouldn't also be hard in that you feel like you're alone. You feel like you don't have support. um, If you feel like, you know, your lab or environment is not a very conducive one. So I think kind of distinguishing what types of hard there are. Mm -hmm. Um, And then if you do feel like things aren't truly, like one thing I learned later on, like after talking, like, so I switched labs a couple of times. I remember my last lab when I was talking to them, I was like, man, sometimes like, just seems like really tough or I get really down. And then you'll be surprised how many people feel the same way. Like in your head, you think it's just you. You think you're the only one that's like, oh, this isn't going my way. But if you kind of talk to everyone around you, like, oh, they feel the same. And I do feel like the research is a roller coaster where one day you're like, oh, I made so much progress. This is great. And like, so you're like going really fast out. And then the next it's like, oh, nothing's happening. You know, for the next couple of months, it's like very slow incline. So have some patience um, and kind of take a step back. So when you feel like some things are really not going so great, like take a step back and realize like, what is it? Is it that you're not really as interested anymore in the topic? Um, sometimes you can do, depending on your PI, obviously, you can do like different side projects that maybe are kind of related, but not the direct ones. You can do something else for a little bit and then come back. Um, Making sure that you do have like, whether it's within your own lab or if it's outside, like a support people you can talk to, as well as uh, I think there's a new ombuds um, person at Hopkins so that you can go and talk to them confidentially. If there's something that's really happening that's with your PI, but you're not really sure if this is okay, but you don't want any like quote unquote, like tattletale on somebody, but you want to have like listening ear and figure out the right steps are, I would take um, use of that resource. And then um, just knowing that you'll get through it. If you, if you really are truly passionate about this, like it'll happen, but then it's also okay if you find that this really isn't, you know, worth it. Like, and that's totally fine too. But I I do think it's a lot of self introspection you have to do. And then find that community is very helpful. 
Mm -hmm. So you, you mentioned not only your father, but other experiences of meeting people and then having sort of networking or mentorship moments into where you are now. And so I would love to hear more about your perspective on mentorship within your academic and professional growth and and ways that people can better foster authentic mentorship opportunities for them in their in their own careers. So I think mentorship is very, very important. Um, I always say that, you know, it, it took a village to get me my PhD. Like, yes, I put in the work, but I had that community support. Um, I had that encouragement. So even like from when I was a little kid, I remember my fifth grade math teacher, uh, Mr. Kettler, he was super informative, like it's super um, important in my life and like helping me really enjoy math. And besides, you know, my, my parents as well, um, even at like the undergrad level, I went to University of Oklahoma. I had a lot of great professors there that I still keep in touch with that, like, you know, helped me out. And um, I learned from them. And then at Hopkins, too, besides my own advisor, I sought out other professors like Dr. Iglesias, who've been like, you know, kind of been my champions. And whenever I needed somebody to talk to, I could go to them. Mm -hmm. Um, And because of all those like different support systems, I really want to give back too. So I like I've been trying to mentor as well. During my time at Hopkins, um, I went to there's a Henderson Hopkins school. So I went to go volunteer with like the middle school, elementary school kids, because I think at the very young age is also really important to have that mentorship and to kind of help the students and not just like, Oh, I'm going to teach you how to do math, but also like I'm here as like a listening ear, you know, I'm here to show you that I do care about your progress in life and Mm -hmm. how you're doing in school. Um, And then Hopkins also had like a woman X uh, mentoring program. So it helped women specifically in a STEM field um, have like maybe a graduate student come talk to undergrad or like higher level grad students with other undergrad students and kind of just like, again, having that, person that you can talk to about not just academics, but like professional or personal. And so you don't feel so alone. Um, And I think giving back is so important. And the way I would say to start mentoring is just find something that you're interested in. I'm like, okay, I like math or I like science or, you know, writing or whatever. And then try to see if there are groups around you, whether at the university or within your community, and then try just like get involved that way. And I promise you'll also feel good about it too. So it's like a selfish and like selfless thing. Like, oh, I'm helping somebody, but I'm also feeling really good about what I'm doing. And I think it's, you'll, you'll, you'll be amazed at how much of an impact you do make in people's lives that way. Definitely. So you mentioned uh, having the opportunity of being a part of women's support groups and, and mentioning how seeing that there weren't as many women or being represented in engineering sort of led you down the path of pursuing engineering as well. And so do you feel that you're seeing change in this now as you are growing in your career? Or do you feel that it's still somewhat of an issue within the next generations of engineers and PhD students in engineering? Uh, That's a good question. I feel like it's starting to get better. I I think that we still have a decent way to go, but I think from at least my time um, and to to now, there has been definitely an improvement. Like I remember when I was an undergrad, I could walk into electrical engineering class and I could either be the only female or maybe like one other female. And then I had no professors who were females or female identifying electrical engineering professors. Um, And so Sometimes that can be really hard because then if you don't see someone that looks like you in some way, then you may not think that I can do the same thing. So I think representation is very important, but I think that the newer generation, there's definitely a lot more, like there is more than there was. Um, I do think that they were starting to grow. 
I right now serve as a judge for the Science Ambassador Scholarship, where we're trying to, you know, help um, high school students as well as like freshman, sophomore college students want to go into STEM. And so one of the ways we can help them is by providing a scholarship. And it's been really, um, really great to actually watch all these videos that they they produce about explaining a really complicated subject like solar sails, for example, but doing it in three minutes for anyone to listen to and then seeing their passion. There was one um, girl during COVID, she had extra time. She went and got her pilot certificate, like the student pilot certificate, and now wants to go into become a pilot in aviation because there's not that many. And so I actually feel very hopeful. And I think that it's getting a lot better, especially with social media. Um, I don't use TikTok, but I know a lot of people do. It's a great platform to like produce these videos and explain things um, or the Insta- Instagram or Facebook. And just, I think having that visualization out there, like, oh, look, there's someone like me who's doing this. Um, so I do think it's getting better. I, I don't think we're quite there yet, but I do see that the change is moving that way. Definitely. And, and bringing up the point of social media too, I think that that is a significant part of we may not have all of the representation that we would like, but just seeing the opportunities that exist in sort of behind the scenes that not everyone has the opportunity to even realize are an option. I think that that is extremely important. And, and like you said, bringing up about passion, you know, sometimes people don't even realize that that's something that they're willing to consider, Mm -hmm. not only because they haven't necessarily seen themselves, but they haven't seen the the possibility of the joy that it could bring them the passion that they could have pursuing Mm -hmm. that so yeah I think that that's all really amazing in in those opportunities and so within the work that you're doing now and whether that be uh you know at Johns Hopkins or on the boards that you serve on what has been some of the most surprising things that you've you've grown from or experienced and and I'd love to hear about that oh that's tough um I feel like I'm constantly learning things, which is great. <laughs> um, so with my current role at Johns Hopkins Tech Ventures, I'm the technology development team. So our work is really in trying to find uh, high value, high impact uh, research that we think can be commercialized. And mm-hmm. so it's been just, I, I always knew there's a lot of great talent, I mean, in Hopkins and out abroad, obviously, but it's just been so cool to see like all the things that people are coming up with, um, professors and grad students and the ideas they have. And then um, getting to learn. So my focus is most electrical engineering with the aspects being more on the biomedical side. But I've been now looking at technologies like in carbon recapture, like energy, things that I really didn't know much about before. But now I'm learning all about it so I can understand the tech so I can help them with the commercialization process. And then now seeing the business side of things. So things that I never really considered, especially when you do research, it's really about the publications and, you know, seeing if it works, your model or the data is there. But then once all that happens, that's great. But it's like, okay, how do I market that? You know, how do I commercialize that? So I got to be part of this um, program called the NS- NSF Innovation I-Corps. Where we did 100 interviews in like seven weeks. Uh, we actually ended up doing like 130, I think, interviews about different people that we thought might be interested in a specific technology and to really learn like, okay, we think it's really cool, but do other people think it's cool? And then if they do, like, what would it take for them to purchase this? And so really understanding customer discovery, come with a business model. It's just a lot of things that I never really thought about. And so now every time like I go and I see like a news article with this like cool technology or even anything I purchased, like there was so much time that was put into just figuring out like, you know, what's the right price? Like, how do I market this? Like, who is my user? 
who is my customer and like these might be all different types of people um so just it's been really interesting and really like eye opening to see that whole process uh, put into play but i i'm very grateful for it because i feel like i know a lot more than i started um and then just be able to be part of all different types of technologies out there and just kind of having a little piece of that you know like oh get to talk about some more ai machine learning and chat gpt stuff or now talk about energy uh, or talk about you know medical diagnostics so this has been it's been interesting definitely so I would love to know what sort of advice you would have for those who are currently developing technologies and hoping to to market them at some point and step into that space because you do have a lot of experience in sort of the behind the scenes and the business. And and so I'd love to hear what advice you'd have for people who are currently developing these technologies. Um, so one piece of advice I have is I'm sure the technology you're building is really cool. Like I have no doubt about that, but you have to make sure you're not the only one who thinks it's really cool. So I, the biggest thing I can tell you is to go talk to lots of people, like, and talk to more than you think you need to talk to just like keep talking to people and really getting their perspective on, is this something that is actually a necessity? Like, will this solve a problem that's there? Or are you just trying to create a problem to hopefully get it solved? Um, so I would I think that's one of the biggest things that I've learned so far is talking to a lot of people and to make sure that what you build, there really is, it's really solving something. Um, and then once you can validate that it's solving something, then you have to really find out, are people actually willing to pay for it? So one of the funny things we'll find sometimes, someone will be like in an interview, oh, this is the coolest thing since like sliced bread or whatever. Like, I love this. This is so amazing. Okay, awesome. Would you buy it? Would you be willing to pay for it? Oh, actually, no, I wouldn't pay for it. So it's like, they may think it's really cool, but they don't actually want to put the money up front. So you need to figure out like, okay, who's your first willing paying customer? Um, so once you know that it really does solve a need, well, then who's really going to willing to pay for it? And I think that'll help. And to be very open to pivoting your ideas. So you may think that, oh, you know, this piece of tech is going to be really great for, I don't know, like this specific type of surgery. But then you go and talk to a lot of people and they're like, actually, it might be more helpful if you use it for this other type of surgery. So being willing to pivot and shift your idea doesn't mean that what you come up with is bad. It just means that maybe the market is dictating something different. So that's why I think it's very good in the beginning um, to just start talking and get those conversations going. So you can know if you need to change things slightly and how to pivot and shift. Yeah, that's, that's all really great advice. And so you're currently working in this space now, and you've mentioned how you would like to go back into becoming a professor and be able to use this knowledge to better help your students. And so what would the next phase look like for you specifically for your career? That's yeah. I, I keep trying to I keep shifting all the time. I think because <laughs> as we said earlier, things never seem to be really a truly linear path. So um, I think I'm trying to lay a lot like a timeline for myself, but being open to things might change throughout the process. Um, so I think once I feel like I've had a good fill of it learning about uh, technologies, commercialization, and, you know, being at JHTV, then I think eventually I would want to go um, to a university that's more teaching focused. So um, one that may, doesn't necessarily have to have like graduate degree programs, but would be for four-year universities or potentially four years of master's, because I do like research, but I'm also very uh, excited about the teaching component of it. And so sometimes I think that might get a little bit lost in the, you know, higher up um, institutions. So I think my focus would be more on the teaching focus institution is for universities and teaching electrical engineering courses. Um, and then I like to advise students as well. 
um, to help them, you know, whatever path they want to take. And then I would love on the side to have some sort of, whether it's my own startup, you know, if I can, I've like been meeting a lot of cool people and like, you know, learning about the stuff they're doing. So if we can come up with something later, or if not um, a scholarship fund, I would like to start that one day because, you know, as I said in the beginning, I really do think education is super important. Um, and I don't want that financial barrier that to be the reason that you can't get that education. So creating some sort of um, merit-based scholarship would also be ideal. But yeah, so I think I still have a couple more years, you know, to be in this space. And then eventually I would like to potentially shift back to academia. Yeah. And be able to share all the experiences and knowledge that you've built and accumulated and, and bring that back to academia and to the next generation of students, whether that be just through your teaching or a scholarship fund or yeah, that's, I think that that's really amazing and I can see you pursuing all of that. So the final yeah. question <laughs> of this interview, and it's sort of the grand finale of each episode. And okay. that is, what inspires you right now? Oh, oh man. So many things. Um, I guess because on my forefront of my mind right now is watching, I watched like a lot of vi- those scholarship videos I was talking about from these like high school students, undergrads. And I think it's the the younger kids. I think they really do inspire me. Just like how passionate they really are about the stuff, and just like how willing they are to like. One um, person she told me that, or in the video she was explaining how during COVID that she felt there's a lot of misinformation out there, and she had family members who were more um, high risk at COVID. So she was a like not doing a lot of things that she could or she would do normally because she didn't want to expose her parents to that, which is like, you know, that's really hard as a kid, but she was very conscious about that. But then she started creating videos to put out on the internet to kind of inform people and like, you know, do fact checking. And I was like, wow, like to be able to just take that on your own, just because you're like, you know what, I want to inform people out there uh, about it, or just like hearing the, like how passionate they really are about one um, has like started their they're at Columbia right now, I think they said, or some university, and they started their own like um, STEM outreach program to help, you know, kids within the city learn about um, STEM topics and be more involved, like just all the things that they are doing because they truly want to, not because anyone's told them to do it, not because they're getting paid, because it's just a true passion. And I say, I think seeing that sometimes the world can seem a little bleak. Um, so it's nice to see that, especially the younger generations where taking upon themselves to like, kind of make good and do good so I think that's really right now inspiring me definitely the the passion of people and the passion that people have for STEM or anything that they care about is truly inspiring and I think that I including the audience have really seen your passion for education and the work (laughs) that you're doing so you have inspired (laughs) I appreciate that thank you Well, thank you for coming to the Futures Podcast. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it.